Hello, welcome to the podcast Psychiatry Talk. I'm Dr. Michael Blumenfield, the Sidney E. Frank Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at New York Medical College and currently in private practice in Woodland Hills, Los Angeles, California. This podcast will examine various topics in psychiatry and mental health. This will include new interviews with experts in various areas, as well as interviews I've recorded in the past. I will also personally discuss subjects that I've written about in my blog, psychiatrytalk.com, or on new topics. Your comments will always be welcome at mblumenfield at gmail.com. That's mblumenfield, B-L-U-M-E-N-F-I-E-L-D, at gmail.com. And now let's get going with today's podcast. Today, my guest on the Psychiatry Talk podcast is my friend and colleague and one of the outstanding people in American psychiatry today, Dr. James J. Strain. Dr. Strain is professor of psychiatry, professor of medical education, and designated master teacher at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. He has over 500 publications and has given more than 800 presentations nationally and internationally. He has lectured and given presentations all over the world. Dr. Strain has played important roles in many professional organizations and has received many awards, including the prestigious Thomas Hackett Award from the American Academy of Psychosomatic Medicine. Dr. Strain has authored and edited several books, and I have had the distinct honor and pleasure of being co-editor with him for two recent books, one titled Psychosomatic Medicine and a more recent book that was just published by Oxford Press this year titled Depression as a Systemic Illness. And we are certainly going to talk about this latter book, but Dr. Strain, I thought it might be interesting to start off our interview by asking you, what made you decide to become a doctor and did you always know you wanted to be a psychiatrist? As a teenager, I was very impressed that one of the uh, schoolmates' uh, father was a psychiatrist. And when I learned what he did and how he helped people, I was very, very enthused that that would be an interesting way to spend one's life. So probably I was 12 or 13 when I heard, first heard of psychiatry. Uh, then another uh, important event took place. I was in the Navy for uh, three or four years, and during that time met with a long-term colleague, visited him in medical school, uh, saw the dean, was accepted to the class after I left the Navy, and uh, there was no question that I wanted to be a doctor, and in particular, a psychiatrist. Though I enjoyed all the other specialties on a rotating internship, um, psychiatry remained a very special interest for me. Were there specific psychiatrists who influenced your early career decisions? The, yes. Uh, basically, his son was a classmate of mine, in uh, high school. When I found out what his father did, his father was seeing many troubled kids from the school. I thought that was such an interesting and important um, way uh, to be helpful to others. So that's where the first thought of, and what does a psychiatrist do, uh, interested me. Well, I know uh, that, Jim, that you studied psychoanalysis. Did you think about becoming a classical analyst? And, and what made you kind of veer off that direction? The analytic uh, interest came in medical school and in particular uh, in my residency. Uh, Anna Freud uh, came to our medical school and she lectured for one week. I was extremely impressed. She was reviewing her book, Normality and Pathology, Assessment in Childhood. And I applied to the New York Psychoanalytic Institute, was accepted after finishing my psychiatric residency, 
at Case Western Medical School, came to New York, and I was very, very lucky. Charles Brenner was my analyst. Edith Jacobson was one of my supervisors with Jacob Arlo and uh, Charles Fisher, and it was a very exciting, stimulating uh, effort with wonderful mentors and teachers. And what about, what uh, did any particular people get you interested in the psychosomatic area? Yes, as a first-year resident, I was asked to help on a psychosomatic service with a uh, physician named Dave Agel in Cleveland. And actually, for my very first year as a resident, I uh, began psychosomatic teaching, consultation, continued that through the residency, did a fellowship in research on electroconvulsive treatment uh, in medically ill patients, and uh, stayed with psychosomatics uh, thereafter. Well, you certainly became one of the pioneers in psychosomatic and particularly in consultation liaison psychiatry, and your early books on the subject really became classics in the field. When you were at Montefiore Hospital, you established this preeminent uh, training program of CL, consultation liaison psychiatry, which continued when you moved to Mount Sinai. And it seems that so many prominent psychiatrists who've worked with you in this area, they can trace their roots back to either being trained by you or being trained by somebody who you trained. So it must give you a lot of satisfaction to look back and see how you've influenced so many people in our field. Oh, I'm, 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 I'm quite thrilled by that. And I'm quite thrilled with the idea of psychiatry having such an important contribution not only to the care of the medically ill, but of the teaching of the medically ill. And I began a program whereby if a psychiatrist working in a teaching hospital would relate with the important people uh, in that system, you could have a greater influence. For example, the head of medicine at Montefiore David Hammerman and I made rounds together every week, and we set up a system where important physicians in medicine would hold weekly rounds with a psychiatrist on every medical floor. And when I moved to Mount Sinai, Dick Gorlin was head of medicine. He became my best friend at the Mount Sinai Hospital. We did co-teaching every week, moving from medical ward to medical ward, uh, and the uh, effort to be able to teach with an important person in that discipline of medicine. Uh, I taught with the head of ear, nose, and throat, Hugh Biller, once a week. We taught with neurology. We taught with OBGYN. And the concept of ombudsman rounds, where an important person in a medical specialty would teach with a psychiatrist, but constantly showing and demonstrating for that group of people, internists, surgeons, obstetricians, the importance of psychiatry in their work. I thought that having the specialist as a co-teacher was an important influence in getting the young medical students and residents to accept psychiatry as a critical part of their specialty training. As that was developing, that you're describing, of course, the consultation liaison model that, that you really uh, were a pioneer in, was there a dichotomy between the psychiatrists who were like doing research and psychosomatic medicine and the consultation liaison psychiatrist? Absolutely. And that's an important point, Michael. There were really two routes psychosomatic medicine. One was research, 
and people trying to show the interrelationship between uh, psychological conflicts, concerns, and physical uh, occurrence, and then a group of practitioners. And the other uh, important event was moving from consultation psychiatry to liaison psychiatry. In consultation psychiatry, the psychiatrist waits for uh, a call from a colleague to see and evaluate a patient. In liaison psychiatry, you actually become part of the medical surgical team on an ongoing basis. So you are constantly showing the importance of psychological thinking and uh, attitude, knowledge, and skills to the non-psychiatrist physician. And this led to the only debate at the American Psychiatric Association of consultation versus liaison psychiatry. It was a very interesting debate. Uh, I took the side of liaison psychiatry with uh, Harold Pincus, who had been a debating champion in Florida, and the Massachusetts General Chairman, Thomas Hackett, and Thomas Weiss took the side of consultation. And it was at this meeting that we really made a point of the power of liaison psychiatry versus the ordinary and uh, had been commonly accepted consultation mode, working with uh, subspecialties, working with important people in medicine that enhance the teaching, and at the same time, taking the information from those doing research in psychosomatic medicine, looking at, for example, the type A personality, the driving, striving uh, individual, and its relationship to heart disease. Looking at loss, people who had undergone bereavement and the effects on their immune system. And a tremendous amount of work was being done on trying to understand the relationship of psychological conflicts, psychological trauma on the body, and pulling these two lines together, one, a research line in psychosomatics, and two, a teaching or information sharing line in consultation liaison. I, I remember that debate very well, and that, that was one of the classic moments in, in our field. You know, I believe you were one of the founders of the Consultation Liaison Society of New York. Can you review how that organization came about and the role that it played? Well, I was one of many uh, who was involved with it, uh, helped it get started, and also won the first uh, award from the Society of Liaison Psychiatry. New York City was unique in having so many medical schools. For example, on the island of Manhattan, there were four prominent medical schools, and then Albert Einstein in the Bronx, and downstate in Brooklyn, and then in the environs, New Jersey, and other places. So there was a critical group of people doing consultation, liaison work in the New York City area, and we felt it was important that we all get together. And I think because we had that critical mass of teachers and medical schools, we actually had our own society, and we prompted places like Philadelphia that put together a society, and Cleveland modeled after the New York example, to have a society. And then, uh, I think, Michael, you'll remember, uh, we were together 
uh, and we went to the Academy of Psychosomatic Medicine uh, that had been a national group and said we would very much like to see the Society of Liaison Psychiatry in New York become a, uh, a section of a national group, the Academy. And we were invited. I know you know this history very well. You and I uh, were invited to meet with the directors of the Academy, and that then began uh, our working much more directly with the Academy of Psychosomatic Medicine, which last Monday, just a week ago, changed its name from the Academy of Psychosomatic Medicine to the Academy of Consultation Liaison Psychiatry. Now, why this was so important, no one outside of those really in psychiatry or the academy knew what psychosomatic medicine was. I mean, what did it entail? It wasn't geriatrics. It wasn't child psychiatry. It wasn't uh, a psychoanalysis, etc. It wasn't forensic. So the term psychosomatic was very diffuse, nondescriptive, and very hard for people outside of the organizations to understand what psychosomatic medicine was all about. So I think that this has been a very important evolution uh, going from consultation to liaison, and now the National Academy the major spokesman for this discipline has the name that describes what we do. And I think that formation uh, of the uh, Consultation Liaison Society of New York at the time really uh, was a pivotal moment because I think that made the psychosomatic, uh, the national American psychosomatic group consider that liaison really had to become an important part of their organization. And I think that was a very pivotal time in in the history. I think so. And I remember you and I meeting with the officers of the academy at that point. And we actually said that unless there was some change (laughs) going to take place in the National Academy, that the Society of Liaison Psychiatry, based in New York, would have its own national forum, that we would become an independent society. And now that name again is important. It was the Society of Liaison Psychiatry. And we had over 100 people involved just in the New York setting uh, in and of itself. So I think that was a pivotal moment. Jim, do do you think we were bluffing? Aha! Michael, I can remember us walking over and uh, being very forthright that unless they would join forces. Right. And also, the other thing, Michael, that we requested is that rather than a gentleman's club, uh, that it would be a scientific organization much more similar to the American Psychosomatic Society, were high-level current findings in psychosomatic medicine be reported. That it wasn't just going to the country club for the weekend, but it was to elevate and upgrade the quality of the presentation and the issues that were going to be discussed. And as you point out, uh, things have come full circle as, as the Academy has uh, just recently changed its name to include consultation liaison in, in the name of the national organization. Yes, and I, I think, Michael, you should feel very good about this, too, that by their doing that, it clearly puts consultation liaison psychiatry front and center, and, and equal with the other seven disciplines uh, in psychiatry, forensic, child, geriatric, psychopharmacology. 
psychoanalysis. So I think this is an extremely important uh, movement. I also think it's psychiatry's best opportunity to influence medicine, surgery, OB, and to influence young people who hear psychosomatic CL psychiatrists presenting cases to join psychiatry or at least learn the methods of psychological management of the medically ill. One of the many areas that you were on the cutting edge of, in addition to what we've been talking about, has been the development of the electronic medical record for our field. Can you talk about how you became involved in that? In 1979, uh, a fellow psychiatrist, uh, Tainter, Dr. Tainter, from NYU, uh, was working with IBM on trying to build database systems. He joined me at Montefiore, and we set up a database for a consultation liaison patient. We worked on that database. We would take the cards to an IBM setting where they were all then recorded into a mainframe computer, and it was the first time that we actually had a data set on consultation patients. Where did they come from? What was their original diagnosis? How long did we see them for? How many went on medications? How many had to be transferred to psychiatry? How many uh, discharge against medical advice patients did we see? Then as, as time went forward, The computers became much more available. We got one called ClinFo. There were nine in the country uh, when I moved to Mount Sinai, and we were able to enter then data directly into a mainframe computer uh, in the library with every consultation patient that we saw. And then we were able to develop a software program that could be used in mobile laptop computer systems. The next step was to get a consortium so we could do studies in multiple locations. And Michael, you were a part of this uh, group uh, at New York Medical College. But we had a series of uh, universities from Australia, to Spain, to a number of other places, Mexico, and several in the States, and we pooled data from consultation liaison patients, probably wrote over a hundred papers from these various sites, and really put electronic health records on the consultation scene before it became a common and now routine electronic health record system in every major hospital. I mean, Epic, Cerner, all these systems have come in since then. And what was amazing, we could give residents, fellows, uh, people on the staff had a data set to look at as we tried to study the consultation process. For example, it had been a guideline that adjustment disorders were to be seen as an entity that really required talking treatment, not medication. But when we reviewed 20 different university locations, when we pooled the data, and some of that data was your data, we learned that 50% of those patients given a diagnosis of adjustment disorder were put on medication, often an antidepressant or an anxiolytic. Now this made us really rethink, was adjustment disorder different in the consultation liaison group? If we had a group of ambulatory patients, 
in ambulatory uh, OPDs, outpatient departments? Would they be treated differently? What about adjustment disorders in the private practitioner's office? The other thing that we were impressed with that when someone wanted to sign out against medical advice, we found that more than 50% of those patients had a psychiatric issue, concern, or diagnosis. So that was an example of where a patient who is going to sign out AMA really should have a psychiatric consultation. So it was an exciting time, and uh, we tried to get people to buy this program for about $10,000, and lo and behold, Mount Sinai then spent $250 million to buy Epic. And the electronic health record is now the standard of medical care and required by most teaching hospitals. So it was a 1979, uh, we were working on it. Sinai bought their system in 1995. So we were 20 years ahead of the curve on that. Right, and that, that demonstrates how, how your work and others in, in the consultation liaison really affected the development of the medical record in, in other medical specialties. I, I really do believe that's the case. Right that it became very clear that you people, you know, we're doing thousands of consultations in this country every year. We were learning nothing from it. There was no benefit from that data set uh, until we began to show, uh, for example, surgery always came in with emergencies. We didn't see garden variety consultations uh, very often. And there were things that we began to see that really should be trained, put into the training program for this various group. We did one study where people on an ear, nose, and throat service had had their uh, larynx removed because of, uh, of cancer. And what kind of approach could you use in a patient who wasn't verbal. So um, it really was, I think, um, a beginning of a new way of looking at patients, and uh, we certainly uh, made a lot of contribution to the literature. Right. And this, this brings us to contemporary times and how you came to conceptualize the idea of depression as a systemic illness. Now, I realize that research was pointing in that direction, but I believe you took the bull by the horn, so to speak, when you conceptualized this idea and subsequently brought me on board as a co-editor of our, our new book. As you know, our book was published about two or three weeks ago, and it's called Depression as a Systemic Illness. We had the opportunity to put together the textbook of psychosomatic medicine. In that book, there was a chapter by Nemiroff and his group from Emory on the influence of psychological issues and heart disease. And in that chapter, there were the beginnings and the suggestion of the risk factors from psychological, from depression, and its effect on the heart. And I got Charles uh, Nemiroff, uh, who is a friend, to change the title of his chapter. Right, I remember that moment. Depression as a, uh, uh, as a systemic illness, and we showed where that data might be coming from. Now, why I'm very excited about our new book. It really is a paradigmatic shift. This is a paradigm shift that depression is not just a mental disorder, but it's a physical disorder. Now, this has many, many implications. 
if it's a physical disorder, how does it affect physical disease? Depression affects the HPA axis, affects affects cytokines, affects glucose metabolism, affects platelet activity. Depression is a greater risk factor for a heart attack, an MI, than smoking. Now, the other piece of this which became so clear is that depression was being treated in the primary care setting. And if you look at 2015, out of 8 million cases of depression in the United States treated, 4 million were done by primary care, 4 million by psychiatrists. Primary care was not doing a very adequate job. The patients were being undertreated or often missed, and it was clear that if we were going to have primary care so involved, that their training program was going to have to be altered. Right. I just want to get that collaborative care on an island like Manhattan that has 2,500 psychiatrists. I want to be sure that that we've clarified this really important concept um, that that you described here and that and that you really uh, I was able to see how you conceptualize it when we when you were suggesting that that chapter be renamed in our first book. Now, one of the key concepts is this uh, idea of allostasis and allostatic load. Can you explain how, you started to explain it, but just clarify how this can be a two-way street and and what these concepts really mean, because I think this is really key, and I want to be sure our listeners catch on to it. Well, the second chapter in the new book depression as a systemic illness disorder is done by Bruce McEwen from Rockefeller. Now, Dr. McEwen is really the author of and primary promoter of allostatic load. That is, what is the load on the body from various issues? They can be poverty, it can be malnutrition, it can be an issue of infectious disease. But what is the allostatic load on the body from depression? And as you begin to look at this, there's a tremendous demand on the body and the organ systems from the presence of depression and what he promotes and what we certainly have emphasized is that depression is an allostatic load not only on the psyche but also on the body for gastrointestinal processes for cardiology for diabetes so that The paradigmatic shift is that depression is not a mental illness per se that should just be treated by psychiatrists that is isolated from the body. And I think this is really a paradigmatic shift because depression, garden variety depression, can and should be treated by primary care. We don't have enough psychiatrists to go around to treat this illness. Psychologists cannot prescribe antidepressants. And 50% of the counties in the United States do not have a psychiatrist. So the whole issue, the second major thrust in our current relationship between psychiatry and medicine is collaborative care. Now, collaborative care is wonderful if you have a specialist who can teach primary care. Rwanda has two psychiatrists. Tanzania has 40 psychiatrists for 44 million people. Treatment of depression 
cannot be delivered by psychiatry. Right. Jim, right. You're, of course, this is a very important idea, and, and uh, you're jumping ahead in my, my thought here. I want to be sure that, that your, the idea is, is clear to our listeners about the, the two-way street of depression. Can you, can you just... Sure. Uh, and I think that's an important point, Michael. I'm glad that you uh, brought me back to it. And it should be emphasized, medical illness can cause depression. If one finds out they have cancer, they have HIV, that they're going to lose a body part, that's going to make them depressed. Uh, It's a precipitant for a depressive disorder. And the idea of loss and suffering from the medical illness points toward the central nervous system, and having a depression. It's bi-directional. But the new paradigm which we are proposing in the new book and in the new title is that depression also affects the body. So it's bi-directional. We may find someone who is um, depressed, and who is unable uh, to follow the medical regimen they should be on. They're non-compliant. They're non-accepting. We have a situation where medical illness can cause depression. Drugs can cause depression. If you take some of the medications we use, they can cause a depressive state. We know that cancer of the pancreas or cancers of uh, neoplastic uh, diseases of the peritoneum can cause depression. Parkinson's disease can cause depression, etc. So, so well, now we have an interesting dichotomy in that illness and drugs can cause a depressive state, but depression can have a major, major negative impact on the body and in body healing. You know, I think it's so uh, interesting that when we look back on the history of our field, that a pioneer like George Engel, writing in the mid 20th century, conceptualized a biopsychosocial model and even talked about things like the nemesis complex where a person might expect to die at, a, at the same age that a parent did, or, 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 and how the intensity of a belief could make that person feel like giving up and that that might precipitate a heart attack. But as valid as those observations were, he had no idea of what the mechanisms were. And we're now at the point where we can talk about these, these mechanisms. Absolutely. And it's very exciting because another finding published in March of 2017. It is just mind-blowing. The World Health Organization stated that depression is the major illness for uh, demand, for hardship, the major illness of burden of health in the world, developing and developed countries. Now, cardiac and cancer are the major illnesses for mortality. But just imagine, depression is the major illness worldwide or burden of health. And it becomes even more significant, as you point out, when we realize the connection between depression and so many other illnesses, including cancer. You know, we were very fortunate to have Dr. Jimmy Holland as a co-author with Dr. McFarland on the chapter on depression and cancer before she passed away. And this, this may have been Dr. Holland's last major publication. And I, I wonder if you could just say a few words about Dr. Holland, which, who I know is a, a very good friend of yours and such an important contributor to our field. I, I'm glad, uh, Michael, you mentioned that. As you know, we uh, made a dedication to Jimmy Holland She died December 24th uh, at her home in Scarsdale, New York, uh, at Christmas Eve dinner 
with her six children and their families. This chapter uh, that she has in our new book, she never saw published. And it's probably the final gift that she has given to the world. Jimmy Holland had been my associate director at Albert Einstein Montefiore for a number of years before she took over the position of psychiatrist-in-chief at Memorial Sloan Kettering here in New York, the world's leading cancer hospital. Jimmy had boundless energy. She also was married to Dr. James Holland, a premier oncologist who actually came up, found, and discovered a treatment regimen for childhood, childhood leukemia where originally, before his discovery, only 15% survived. He increased that figure to 85%. Basically, children can live with leukemia from his multiple drug intervention plan that he discovered. They, they both certainly made very important contributions. In, in uh, they were a husband and wife team. Jimmy began... Uh, two major international programs uh, pulling uh, people working in cancer together. She was a member of the National Academy. She is the one who got the National Academy to say that every cancer hospital should have a psychiatrist available for care. She wrote with her friend uh, in England the first textbook of psycho-oncology. She established two journals of psycho-oncology. Right. Jimmy had six children, 20-some grandchildren, and she used to cook them dinner. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Just an amazing woman. Uh, also, Jimmy uh, Holland and I set up the psychiatric unit on Rikers Island for HIV patients. Uh, for six months, once a week, we went to Rikers Island, worked with these patients, with these prisoners, and began one of the first inpatient psychiatric services for HIV prisoners in a public prison space. You know, Jim... Just a wonderful person. Yes, she was, and I'm glad you were able to pay that tribute. And, and when we talk about uh, somebody who interacts with their family... You wrote a very interesting chapter with your son on the updated electronic health record for depression management. Now, we touched upon this subject earlier, but I, I'm wondering if you have any further thoughts about this subject, and also, how was it working with your son on this project? You know, it's interesting, Michael. In our textbook in 2007, Psychosomatic Medicine, uh, my son Jay uh, who is a trauma surgeon in Philadelphia, wrote the final chapter. And it was a forward-looking piece of the electronic health record. But in the new book on depression, he's taken a very unique approach to the electronic health record as a collaborating agent. For example, he shows with delirium we now have algorithms in the hospital with certain findings and certain chemical findings. If anyone on the staff finds a delirious patient, a protocol can be put in place. And it doesn't have to be doctor originated. The nurse can do this. If you look at, at sepsis, we now have protocols in hospitals where sepsis, uh, the early identification of sepsis, both chemically and physically, the protocol can be put in place by anybody taking care of the patient. It doesn't have to be a physician-originated protocol. If you look at dicubitus ulcers, there is now a protocol and we have these three protocols at Sinai. We've cut down morbidity and we have cut down mortality by having these illnesses looked at by a much wider 
group of caretakers than just the MD. He does with depression, he shows how we, with the smartphone, with the electronic devices available, with health kiosks, how we could begin to sense who is depressed. This information could be provided to the primary care physician, alerting them may have depressed patient. Guidelines are then given how to further evaluate and an electronic health record established how a protocol for treatment could be put together. Now, you put this in context with what Harold Pincus is, is pushing, and that is that the primary care physician should have a team in his or her office, like they do for diabetes, for asthma, for congestive heart failure. For diabetes, they have a nutritionist on diet. For asthma, they have someone who goes to the home to look for rugs and pets and sources of allergens. If the, if the primary care physician had a social worker, a, a psychologist, or a nurse physician, they could do the talking treatment required to handle a depressed person. But he suggests a protocol that we have, we could have similar to that now for decubitus ulcers, delirium, sepsis, and more and more of these will be coming into place. So this is really a very groundbreaking subject and you're explaining what you mean by collaborative care and, and why that model isn't working anymore. And perhaps you can um, just explain why you think the collaborative model doesn't work or won't, won't work as well in the future. The collaborative model is now the headwind uh, in American psychiatry and getting psychological care into primary care. Very important, Wayne Caton and his group uh, have to be complimented with their pioneering studies out in Washington State and with the Puget Sound Health uh, Organizations. I have traveled in every country of the world, including North Korea. China, with 100, uh, 1.4 billion people, has only 20,000 psychiatrists. India, with 1.3 billion people, has fewer than 25,000 psychiatrists. And as I've said, even in our country, 50% of the counties in this country do not have a psychiatrist. So the idea of a psychiatrist collaborating with a primary care team is problematic in three quarters of the world because of the lack of psychiatrists. Even in the United States. Right. And, and you really uh, go into that in, in great detail and make this case in, in, uh, in one of the final chapters in our book. And the, the name of the book is Depression as a Systemic Illness. It's edited by Dr. Strain and myself and published by Oxford University Press. It's in soft cover and it's reasonably priced and available on Amazon or from Oxford University Press. So I hope people will will think about it and uh, and you you certainly have uh, started a, a really important uh, discussion on some very important subjects. While I have you here, I want to get your view on one more one more thing. You're probably the most widely traveled person that I know. I think you've visited just about every country in the world. Maybe there's one or two you haven't hit yet. Uh, and I know you've lectured and met with psychiatrists. What do you think the, the state of knowledge is on the subjects that we're talking about uh, in, in different places in the, in the world? And you started to discuss it, but, but are, are doctors in other countries addressing these subjects? Michael, I think it's an important question and very uh, dear to my heart. We have been in every country of the world. I have lectured uh, in many, many places. And what is desperately needed, again, a paradigm shift. If we just look at depression, depression 
garden variety depression should be taken care of by primary care. The paradigmatic shift is depression is a systemic illness, not just a mental illness. Medical school training must make someone competent in the diagnosis and management of garden variety depression. Residencies must have cases that are supervised like they do for asthma, diabetes, hypertension, congestive heart failure. We need a medical model for garden variety depression. We have good drugs for depression. 50% of people respond to the SSRIs. Now the 50% who do not respond to SSRIs, and this is from the STAR-D study uh, done by the government, one of the largest looking at treatment interventions, if a patient doesn't respond, then refer to mental health workers, refer to psychiatry, uh, refer to other people who can work to psychologists. But garden variety depression, with the available ability of our arsenal of drugs, if depression is going to be treated in the world, especially the developing world, it's going to have to be treated by primary care. The collaborative model is wonderful if you have collaborators. But as I've said earlier, we're deficient in collaborators. And if depression causes the greatest burden of health in the world, we need a paradigmatic shift to change the training of primary care physicians in medical school and residency. And it should be part of their province to treat garden variety depression. Well, you certainly are making this point very clearly, and I know that you're influencing many people, not only in this country, but throughout the world in your travels. And it's really been a, a very special pleasure and honor to be your colleague and friend, and, and I thank you for, for joining me on this podcast today, Jim. Well, I thank you for allowing me to hold forth on this, and I thank you for our relationship over 20 or 30 years, and we've had such a good time pulling these pieces together, and I think if we can get this information out, it will really be a contribution to the world. Great, and I, and I look forward to future work with you. Thank you very much, Dr. James J. Strain. This concludes today's podcast. Your comments are always welcome at mblumenfield at gmail.com. That's M-B-L-U-M-E-N-F-I-E-L-D at gmail.com. This is Dr. Michael Blumenfield wishing you a pleasant day.